Hi, everyone. Eric here. We produce a daily newsletter that if you're a professional who follows African affairs or Chinese foreign policy, you're definitely going to want to consider subscribing to. It's packed chock full of primary source information, the latest news and research, data, and of course, our own exclusive analysis. To find out more, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. We'll give it to you free for the first two weeks just to see if you like it. You can cancel at any time if you're not happy. Also, if you use the promo code PODCAST at checkout, we'll throw in a really big, juicy discount. Of course, it's always half off for students and teachers. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, for regular listeners of our program, will know that we have been talking about energy issues quite a bit over the past couple of months, looking at the Suapiti Hydroelectric Dam in Guinea, also the Sengwa Coal-Fired Power Plant in Zimbabwe, both projects uh, financed and constructed by the Chinese government. Sengwa, of course, still yet to be constructed and in development, but backed by the Chinese. And it really brings us to the issue of electricity and power generation in Africa, as one of the most important issues in the development space, but also because when there is a recovery coming out of COVID-19, power is going to be critical. In part because currently, right now, 650 million Africans, which is about two-thirds of the entire continent's population, still lack access to reliable electricity. We're also looking at an energy infrastructure deficit uh, that is shaving off percentage points from GDP, so holding back the productivity uh, the African Development Bank estimates that every year somewhere between 2 and 4% of African GDP is cut down because of a lack of consistent, reliable power generation. So it is going to be a very, very critical issue. But as we've talked about on this program for months and years now, the Chinese have played a very, very important role in financing a lot of the new energy capacity, whether it's solar power plants in, Z in Zambia or, as we talked about in Guinea and Zimbabwe, the Chinese have played a very important role. However, the COVID-19 crisis and the economic crisis seems to be having a dramatic impact on Chinese overseas energy financing. So China's two largest policy banks, with both with global operations, we've talked about these a lot, the China Development Bank and the Export-Import Bank of China, have cut back their financing of energy projects to their lowest level since 2008, according to data from the Boston University Global Development Policy Center. So get this, China's policy banks issued only three loans for energy projects in 2019, totaling just $3.2 billion, which is down a whopping 71% from the $11 billion that they did in 2018. So Cobus, that is ominous, I think, for Africa, where there is such a power deficit and where reliance on Chinese infrastructure lending has been so critical. But going forward, it may not actually be possible. 
Yes, it's it's worrying, um, and I think it's it's particularly worrying because it affects so many aspects of African futures at once. You know, as as you say, it, it affects GDP. It, it it tends to really dampen foreign direct investment if, if a country doesn't have a stable electricity supply. And of course, it also um, affects the, the future of, of all of these young people in Africa, particularly also environmentally, because, because um, you know, kind of as, as we've discussed before, coal-fired plants are surprisingly prominent still in, in the projects that are going ahead, but not having electricity has its own environmental impact, you know, so because then people are, are forced to burn wood, for example, to, you know, to, to cook and, and uh, you know, so, so that itself has a, a massive ecological footprint and then also a massive public health footprint. So what we want to do today is rather than focus on a specific country or a specific project, and even necessarily focusing on the Chinese uniquely, we want to step back and look at the energy market as a whole to get an overview of where the opportunities are at the same time what the challenges are. And somebody who I've been following on LinkedIn for quite some time and who's also a close follower of the work we do uh, is Tapelo Mohadi, who is the executive director at Shumba Energy. Uh, Shumba Energy, for those who are not familiar, it's an energy company based in Botswana that has interests throughout southern, the Southern African development community in coal, in solar, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Tapelo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us from Johannesburg today. Very good morning to you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Kobas, for this uh, opportunity. Well, I'm looking at the Shumba Energy website, and on your site, you have a map of the SADC where you talk about the power deficits in Botswana. There's a power deficit of 600 megawatts in Zambia, 1,500, Zimbabwe, 950, South Africa, 21,000, and Namibia, 600 megawatts. So the demand for power is clear. The supply is not there. Why don't you kind of tell us where we are right now in terms of energy generation, energy distribution, especially in light of the economic crisis that we're facing today. Okay, Eric. Uh, I mean, you know, the that fact sheet probably is about uh, four years old now, but really not much has changed uh, uh, since since then. Uh, the energy deficit in the southern region of, of the continent, it is still very, very dire. And just to give a context, you know, uh, the southern African region really relies on ESCOM. And as Cobas will know, ESCOM has been having its own challenges, generation generation challenges. And countries like Namibia, countries like Botswana, countries like uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Lesotho have been reliant on on ESCOM for 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 long time. So, you know, now with ESCOM challenges, many of those countries have been exposed, and uh, there've been there's been a very serious movement for those countries to start looking at their own energy uh, sustain sustainability. So fortunately, you know, in, in the Southern African region, I think if also in Western uh, East Africa, you have, you know, the what they call the interconnectors or the power pools, whereby, you know, the energy that is uh, produced in South Africa can be uh, easily moved to Tanzania can be moved uh, you know all over all over all over the region i guess with the exception of uh, malawi angola where they are still busy with uh, with uh, uh, transmission investments so uh, the 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 situation has not has not changed what we have seen is that most of the new generation projects have been happening in in south africa 
with obviously lots of constraints and a lot of challenges. As you know, Midupi and Kusile, which have been touted as the backbone of what ASCOM power generation will be, have been having serious technical technical difficulties. But you know, on the other side, South Africa has been very uh, uh, proactive, at least in the beginning, with the renewable energy energy projects. Uh, you know, any time between 2013 to 2000 and um, 2017, we saw investments of about 200 billion rent, I think, which is about 15 billion dollars now. In you know, uh, for the procurement of about 3,000 mega, megawatts of, of electricity, and uh, the project was uh, was uh, stopped a bit, uh, you know, during uh, uh, late say, 2017. But we have seen now the resurgence again from the government pushing for the renewable energy procurement procurement process. Now we see it is uh, uh, there is on the table. Uh, demand for about 2,400 megawatts worth of projects that uh, companies, uh, in, uh, private companies, uh, needs to procure or at least needs to pro- to produce for on behalf of uh, uh, South Africa. And but also we are seeing other uh, procurement processes in Botswana. Botswana, there's a hundred uh, megawatt uh, procurement process that is that is that is going there. Also in Zimbabwe, there is a RFI, the request for information for about 550 megawatts. So there is a whole lot of these projects that that, uh, that that are happening. And I think for me, what is of interest, you know, since you spoke about uh, about China earlier on, is that, you know, when this procurement process are out, that's really where you see the interest in financing for some of these projects. Most of these projects are oversubscribed whereby you know all the developers from china from europe from america wants to take to take to take part in this in this project so we'll really see what what is happening but uh, there is a you know greater need for 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 for, for energy generation now uh, especially if we are going to recover from the from this covid crisis and probably just to add i mean uh, today uh, today is the 23rd of uh, june uh, there is a currently a symposium on infrastructure in South Africa. And uh, I read some notes around that, that uh, energy is going to be the big, one of the big uh, expenditure that uh, the country will be undertaking. I also received a draft document from Botswana. Also the same thing, energy is going to be the big, the big, uh, 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 the big uh, project uh, that that the government is looking that is looking at so we'll see exactly who are the people who will be interested in that who will be participating and for me that will allow us to gauge exactly whether the chinese whether the the western countries are interested in investing in energy projects in the continent so you know if we can unpack that point a little bit more um we tend to talk and we tend to focus a lot on on chinese involvement in in some of these projects but who are the other partners you mentioned western countries but like like which specific entities are you know, are those governments or other kind of entities who who tends to be funding um these kind of electricity projects just to give you know what is a broader play here uh Jacobus, is that in Western countries, you find that it's private companies. But it's private companies that come with lots of uh, uh, concessional type of funding from their own government. 
because they want to finance infrastructure, uh, cleaning, the cleaning of the economy in the continent. So it will be led mainly by your private sector, but with uh, uh, big uh, concessional funding from the from their own governments. While China will be a state-led state-led companies with obviously the uh, state-backed finances. There seems to be a real tension in Africa, as there is in other places, in terms of whether to use carbon-based energy or renewable energy. And in China, for example, where there's a schizophrenic view on these things, uh, on the one hand, it's a hyper-green economy where solar's coming on, electric scooters, electric transportations everywhere. It's a very modern society in that sense. But at the same time, uh, Greenpeace reports this year that China's moving ahead with 48 gigawatts of coal-fired power plants, which is about one and a half, 1.6 times the entire installed capacity of 2019. And that's on top of the 46 gigawatts that were already planned. Donald Trump in the United States is a huge advocate of coal. And we've talked about the Sengwa power plant in Zimbabwe, where a lot of people say coal actually does make sense, given the fact that Southern Africa has an abundant supply of coal. At Shumba Energy, you are uh, invested in coal and, uh, as well. Talk to us a little bit about the tension between renewable versus carbon-based energy. The tension is real, uh, uh, Eric. Uh, and I think for, for the right reasons. I think uh, any energy developer in, in Africa or anywhere in the world will be delusional not to think that we need to have far better energy uh, um, efficiency uh, across the world and across 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 the region but the tension really arises from the fact that you know when you're in the continent when you're sitting in Zambia when you're sitting in Zimbabwe you don't have power you know so the the the, the electorate or at least the citizens are a bit uh, agnostic about where will that power come come from? So whether the government pushes for, for renewable, whether it pushes for coal, you know, people want power. And that's really, for me, where I normally see the, 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 the tension rise. So uh, until, you know, at least from my side, until Africa is energy uh, sustainable, those tensions are going to, to continue between people who say, uh, you know, it's all good to tell me about all these things that are important, but as things stands now, you know, my situation is dire. And if you don't help me uh, develop, if you don't help me, you know, pro, you know, by providing the solution, you know, the I'm, you know, I'm indifferent to 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 what uh, to what to what to what you are saying to what you are saying to me. But I think from a govern from government policy point of view, I mean the issue of cleaning the economy is is, is very is very important. Uh, but you know, us as developers, there for you know being agnostic about the energy source, you know, uh, the question is exactly what each country will tolerate, and uh, if all goes well and can be able to raise funding for this thing. You know, it is something that will that will that will that will pursue. You know, you are talking about um, uh, China uh, developing new coal plants. I mean, two weeks ago, I think I read a report uh, that uh, Germany opened about thousand one hundred megawatts coal uh, coal based power station. And I think last year or early January, Japan was putting about twenty two 
22 power stations, coal-based power stations. That's right. Japan is actually one of the fastest-growing coal countries in the world. They got rid of their nuclear. So do you find there's a hypocrisy a little bit from countries like Japan, Europe, and the United States who are preaching to Africa to use renewable energy when, in fact, they themselves are still reliant on coal for a significant portion of their energy mix? You know, I won't really regard it as, as hypocrisy in, in, that, in, that, in that sense. Like I say, I think we acknowledge here, I think everybody acknowledges in the world, unless you're really stubborn, that we need to clean our economies. You know, I think for us, what we find is that the local realities are never considered whenever all these arguments are, are, are made. So the, the hypocrisy is not on the coal itself, but the hypocrisy is on... You know, uh, we understand, we agree, but you're leaving us in the ledge in terms of what what what, what needs to happen. So, uh, you know, you we, at some point you need to come to 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 a point where we all agree what is wrong, what is right, and if what if if we agree this is what is right, what's going to be do all of us needs to be all countries need to be focused on that on that what is right, which is the greening of the economy. Well, you know, in, in relation to that, um, if, if we take it out of the, the moral discussion for a moment about, you know, kind of future generations and the, and, and the environment, um, if we just simply look at cost, how does coal and, and green energy break down in, in southern Africa in relation to cost? Because globally, we've seen renewables, the prices really falling. And to the extent that, that in, in some countries, they're now considered the more cost effective option compared to coal. Um, how does that shake out in southern Africa? I think this uh, this is one of the contentious argument uh, about uh, about uh, the cost of, of of energy, and I think us as players, as people who do these financial models all the time, you know, you these the picture is is is, is uh, how do I put it? It's, it's it's much more complicated. You know, if you are asking. What is the cost of generation? Cost of generation is cheaper than solar. But what is the cost of operation? You know, uh, just to really make an illustration, you're not really being in favor of coal or being in favor of, of, of solar because I don't really want to wanna enter into that debate. But, you know, the reason, for example, uh, Germany, and I'll use Germany and, uh, and, uh, and Japan, are pursuing these things because they tell you that the energy factor that they get from from base load are much higher than the energy factor that they get from solar. You know, as we know that base load will get to 24 hours, while renewable energy, depending on what so what is what type of renewable energy, will only get you certain certain amount of electricity per 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 per, per day. So if you're looking at one cost, which is generation cost. It is clear that renewable energies energies are cheap, but if you look at the entirety of of, of the operation, you know then it's a it's a debate of exactly what is what is what is uh, what is cost effective. But I'm and obviously I'm excluding you know the environmental impact and all those sort of things. So I'm just now talking the cost from a face value point of view. Yeah, that's the problem actually that they're having in countries like Vietnam and in Southeast Asia where they're generating a lot of solar power. In fact, they are way ahead of schedule in terms of the amount of generation. It's the distribution, storage, and the processing of all that electricity that's causing problems. The grid simply can't keep up 
with the amount of electricity that's being generated. And I think that's a key problem in parts of Africa as well, where there's a disconnect between the generation and the distribution. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, in South Africa now, I think uh, ESCOM, uh, ESCOM CEO uh, mentioned that to be able to absorb all the renewable energy, ESCOM has to come with 20 billion rand, which is yeah, $750 million, I think, just on being able to accommodate the renewable energy on the grid. But the question is, who's going to absorb the cost? Because on the cost of generation of, of, a, of a solar plant, those costs are not reflected. But then ESCOM has to put up $20 billion to be able to make sure that the grid is, uh, is, 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 is able to handle all the power from different, from different sources with different energy levels. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. In relation to the grid, um, to which extent are Southern African countries focused on creating a and, and here I'm speaking from very low level of knowledge, so excuse any kind of mistakes. But, you know, to, to which extent are they focusing on, on creating what, to my mind, is a kind of a conventional centralized grid? And to which extent are, um, is microgrids part of the conversation? The, from a centralized, from a regional point of view, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, you have a South African power pool, which is really a, a grid connection across all the, all the countries. And that grid connection has been expanded now into into Malawi, into Angola, uh, into into the DR, into the DRC. So you have uh, you know massive grid connection that can be able to evacuate power from wherever you wherever you're generating it in the in the in the region. Microgrids have uh, really re- uh, gained in prominence, especially in the continent. If you look at how sparse some of the areas around here are. So you look at countries like Namibia, Botswana, they're very sparsely populated. So it doesn't really make sense to put a huge 700 kV transmission line when you can, you know, when for a small community. And that's really where the microgrids are again in prominence. So if you look at what is happening in the market now, those countries are issuing uh, 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 tenders uh, for the microgrid, so they're gaining prominence just on the basis that they cater for, they cater for for for, for mark, they they cater for for regions that otherwise won't be catered for by huge investment in transmission lines. Tapelo, help me understand something here because this is part of the struggle that I've been trying to understand about where we go from here. So we're in the midst of now an unprecedented economic public health crisis that is changing absolutely everything, including trade. And one of the discussions that a lot of people are having in many parts of Africa and in many parts of the world is that we can no longer be so dependent on China for imports and for lots of the things that we consume. So therefore, they want to increase manufacturing in parts of Africa so that they can kind of end some of the dependency. Uh, This is not like the decoupling that we're hearing from the United States, but it's this idea of it's not safe economically to be so dependent on China. But the problem is in Africa, is in order to build a manufacturing center, 
you have to have an energy capacity. You have to be able to have factories that run reliably, and that is a big problem. And so we hear all of this happy talk about growing the manufacturing center. And I say happy talk because I feel like sometimes it's disconnected from the power supply question that you focus on every day. Um, what is the feasibility of building legitimate manufacturing in many parts of Africa and at the same time building up that power generation capacity and closing the power generation deficit? How do you think about that from the power side of things? You know, uh, Eric, for us, talking uh, as by Energy, as developers, uh, we think that the whole uh, reindustrialization of, of our region is very important. And, you know, initially what will happen, we always had a chicken and egg situation whereby we're going to produce power, excess power, who's going to consume that power? So I think what is going to be interesting is that if there is serious aggregate demand, let's say for industrialization, then it justifies the investment the investment in, in, in power. And the question will be how methodical are we as a continent, as countries, to be able to align the two things, to say, my power availability will meet my, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing needs, needs capacity. So what will really be required from the African continent, as they are calling for this, is to be able to, to calibrate this thing very well, or else it's just going to be one of those wishes that we make in the continent that, they, that, we never, that we never realize. But I think the call for manufacturing, again, the call for being self-sustainable in, 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 in uh, critical, uh, critical products in the, in the country, will really make, at least should make our policy makers here think about this in broadly, to say you can't have manufacturing capacity without electricity and you can't have excess electricity without, without the consumer. But if they implement this thing, uh, clearly and you know well thought. Then I think we we'll, can be dealing with we can be dealing with uh, uh, we can you know there's, there's a saying in this continent that you hit uh, you hit two base with one stone. So we have that opportunity to be able to hit both increased capacity of our manufacturing and the the generation side of power generation side of uh, of our economies. Um, this week, as we're recording, there's a it's kind of Pan-African virtual summit happening um, in relation to the Grand Inga Dam um, in, in the Congo, or the Grand Inga 3 Dam um, in the Congo. Um, you know, th this is one of those projects in Africa that, that people always discuss, and like, oh, it's, it's going to be a game changer, and then it somehow so far hasn't hasn't realized hasn't been realized um you know how optimistic are you about uh, about this project and and in general what what do you think of its future role if we're really serious about the cleaning of of you know economy in the continent i think cleaning inga dam is going to play a very critical 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 role uh what is really uh What's gonna be? You know, personally, I'm 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 sort of fifty-fifty. It can happen. Uh, the justification for it to happen are there, but whether there is a political will, you know, uh, to to make it happen is something that I really that I really doubt. Just to give a sort of a perspective, you know, in South African uh, uh, IRP, so Inter Integrated Resource Plan, they put about two thousand five hundred megawatts of hydropower needs to come from, from the Congo. 
But to be able to evacuate that power from the Congo, you need to build a transmission line that goes over Congo, Zambia, or Angola, uh, into Botswana, or depending what route what route they choose into into South Africa. And 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 the history tells me that it is very difficult to do cross-border projects in the continent. You know, uh, putting that transmission line will take long. Uh, so I'm I'm really 50-50 to it. I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a it's a project with a potential, but if countries that you know are, are closer to the project are not going to be working together, that project is not going to happen, no matter how good the project will be for the continent. So you think it when we look at these different ideas and these projects about power generation, that the national projects have a better chance of succeeding rather than anything cross-border or pan-African? Absolutely. I mean, there are very few pan-African projects uh, or inter-country inter, inter projects that, uh, that, that happen here. Okay, so let's kind of, again, look forward and taking into account the moment that we're in today. Uh, right now, Kenya's credit rating is under review from Moody's. South Africa has been downgraded by S&P and Moody's. Ethiopia has been downgraded as well. Uh, we're looking at a financial crisis of enormous magnitude here. And the ability for African countries to go out into the capital markets to borrow is going to be more difficult given the fact that they are now running massive deficits, they're asking for delays and suspensions on debt repayments, they probably are going to find it difficult to borrow more. The Chinese, as we've talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, don't seem to be as eager to bring out the big giant checkbooks anymore like they were in the past. So where does the money come from? You mentioned you know, in, in, early on in our discussion that still power projects are oversubscribed. And I'm curious about, is that going to fulfill the financing gap that will build this infrastructure to produce power? Uh, I mean, Africa, Africa infrastructure needs obviously huge. But normally what I find is that in, in energy projects, you know, there's, uh, there's always financial structures that allow even countries that are uh, in no position to raise capital to, to finance, to be able to, to, to finance those projects. And I'll just make a few examples. You know, in countries like Zimbabwe, where you have, you know, big platinum players, uh, depending on how government arranges the, the, the uh, procurement process, you have ability for private companies to be able to stand guarantee for, for the power projects. They'll be the off-takers of the project, but also the, the able government to be able to, to, to get the project, the project going. In South Africa now, uh, I think in March, the government uh, said to companies they can self-generate, uh, you know, their own their own power. So many of the companies are blue chip. They have a, a strong balance sheet, so they have the ability to be able to 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 procure to procure the energy. So as I said earlier on, also with the with the some of the European countries with the concessional loans where they have grants and all those sort of things. So it, it, it's going to be, it's not going to be straightforward as you're saying that I'm going to move from here to the capital markets and raise money. It's really going to depend on how you structure it, who's going to be the off-taker behind, who's going to be the, the end user. Uh, and those things, obviously, I don't know what capacity of that is, 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 is uh, it's available or eligible in the continent, but you, you're still going to see a lot of players still taking chances to develop power projects in these countries, despite the challenges that you alluded to. 
which countries in in Africa um, are you most optimistic about in terms of their 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 you know kind of short to medium term electricity supplies, and which are you most worried about? <laughs> interesting, interesting question. Uh, it's it, it's a tough one, Kobas. Uh, I mean, now if you look look at it, uh, I'll say Namibia should be should be leading in terms of renewable projects after after South Africa, uh, Botswana too. Uh, countries with good credit rating, you know, they are they are solid. Uh, these countries, for me, should should uh, should be leading, but their power consumption is still very low. You know, uh, you can't put two thousand megawatts there. There really be no. No need for it. Uh, but you also find that there's interest in Zim, uh, especially on the energy on the energy side. Uh, countries that will really be worried about, and I hope this does not jeopardize my future business a transaction, are really countries like your Zambia, countries like uh, like Malawi. Uh, there's just too many uncertainties from regulatory, from just just a lot of things that are happening. Obviously, uh, Zambia, as compared to other southern countries, has uh, serious that uh, currency problems. So, I I, I see those two countries as uh, I may add Angola to it, but for me, those two countries, those three countries, uh, uh, you know, it will be a, to, to take a long assessment. Obviously, depending on what transaction is available there, but it will. It will, it will, it is, it is watch and wait with those countries. While countries like uh, Namibia, Botswana, even South Africa, depending obviously on the strength, these things are structured, they, they'll really present good opportunities for developers of energy in the continent. And very quickly before we go, because we want to let you get back to your day, going forward, just picking up on Cobus's question there, looking at where you think there's opportunities and where you don't, renewable versus coal, where do you think the, the direction is going? I think we're seeing the end of the end of coal, you know, in a substantive substantive level. So uh, we're gonna see more gas, we're gonna see more renewables, but coal really because then it's a function of funding. You know, uh, many of the trusted funding partners, China, Japan, Korea, are very reluctant to 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 fund now. South African banks. Have made it clear that they don't want to fund coal-based uh, power station. So it's renewable. In the long term, it's going to be renewable. But we're still going to need to see a lot of base base load. I mean, South Africa last week they were made, they issued a request for information for for nuclear. So, but coal coal is is really it has reached its limit. I think we're going to see the current power station operating probably for the next 30, 30 years or so. But post that. They, I don't see them. I don't see them. New power stations being erected, at least as part of the world. Okay, well, that's encouraging, at least in one sense, from an environmental point of view. Tapelo Mohadi is the executive director at Shumba Energy. He's based in Johannesburg. Shumba Energy is out of Botswana. Uh, Tapelo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it, and also a big thank you for being a subscriber to our daily newsletter. Uh, so we're glad that you are following us and. Hope that you're enjoying the newsletter as well. No, to Kobas and Eric, thanks for the opportunity, guys, and keep up the good work. Kobas, throughout the discussion with Tapelo, I kept thinking about the pragmatism that he's bringing to it. And he said something very interesting. He said, people just don't care where it comes from. 
And I think that pragmatism aligns with the Chinese approach on these things. And the Chinese don't seem to be dogmatic or ideological about renewable versus coal versus hydro. Uh, it's what the host country wants. At the same time, I think the Chinese are, they like hydro and they like coal and these things so they can actually build that very efficiently. But if a country says we want to do solar, as the case is in a half a billion dollar solar power plant in Zambia that the Chinese are involved in, they'll do that. So this pragmatism, I think, is very, very important. And that was one of the themes that came out of the conversation with Tepelo very, very clear. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, in, in, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question for me because um, because what strikes me is that this kind of pragmatism, not top, I'm not mentioning, you know, discussing Tapello particularly, but the, as you mentioned, the Chinese pragmatism or the kind of agnosticism about whether to build one or the other, that, that kind of decision-making reflects a certain kind of way that that certain costs are not are not factored into into the the calculations you know so so the 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 long term cost of of carbon you know air pollution is not factored in and obviously there's been a lot of work to try and start to to, to start to put a price on carbon pollution but the the long term effects of coal mining is also not factored in there. You know, kind of that is usually externalized to the state, actually, or to local communities. And one thing, South Africa is a big coal mining area, um, and coal mining is extremely destructive. Like, it's it's usually, it's frequently open, mi- open pit um, mining. Um, and then South Africa has, has developed a massive problem with water, you know, groundwater com- coming up through those mines and then kind of streaming out. Um, and that water is extremely acidic because it's it's been moving across coal faces for, for you know, for so much. So sometimes that water is, is on the same pH as lemon juice, very, very acidic and very in- environmentally destructive. But the bill for that coal mining isn't factored into these to these discussions. That bill goes to local communities or to the state. So, you know, so, so for me, that pragmatism has some weaknesses in terms of you know in, in, in terms of the kind of realistic way that it looks at at the long-term impact of these projects as we think about the power mix between coal renewable uh, carbon-based energy I think we we should focus a lot on what's going on in Kenya now Kenya is a a, a particular example but in many ways I think it highlights where everybody wants to go and should go in part because it is mostly renewable. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's close to 90-plus percent renewable, and President Uru Kenyatta's goal is to get it to 100% renewable. And so, and the Chinese are involved in that. So again, it's one of these things where people will say the Chinese are supporting coal or supporting hydro, which are, again, a very environmentally heavy and impact. But at the same time, they are also uh, active in the solar market. Last year, the Chinese opened and built a 50-megawatt solar power plant in Garissa, which is in northern Kenya. And for the first time, that part of Kenya now is part of the national grid because of this Chinese-built 50-megawatt plant. So again, it's one of these, these these stories, Kobus, where a lot of people will assign the Chinese to be uh, a positive player or a negative player, but it's actually both and. Yes. Um, you know, and the, the, the role of of these governments, China in particular, I think really needs a lot more scrutiny. Another one that that really like baffles me is, is Japan. Like as as you mentioned, Japan, you know, you know, is is, is phasing out nuclear nuclear energy after the Fukushima disaster, um, among others, because that it, it makes a lot of political sense within Japan. And in 
response they're putting in a lot of coal. But I have never understood why why Japan didn't follow Kenya's route and Iceland's route, both of which managed to get very clean energy through the use of geothermal. And if you if you go around in rural Japan, there's parts of rural Japan where you, you literally have like bubbling geysers and bubbling kind of like pools of boiling mud. This, you know, kind of the, the, the fault lines are so, are so close to the surface. I never understood why Japan isn't a world leader in geothermal energy. Um, and why, yeah, you know, kind of why, why a country like Japan, a country like Germany is still, they, they, why they're still kind of factoring coal in at all. It's like, I, I think these, the, the, the global north needs a much harder kind of, you know, kind of look at, at at the decisions they're making. Well, we're glad to have had the opportunity to speak with Tapello and to kind of, again, step back from the minutia of the China-Africa relationship, because we're going to dive deeper into uh, China-Africa power issues over the next six months. Uh, but we thought it would be a good benchmark to have someone like Tapello come on and kind of lay the groundwork for us about some of the challenges in terms of financing, distribution, generation, transmission, cross-border transmission, again, a problem. Kobus, that was one of the consistent things we've been hearing in a number of our discussions is that we talked about it in our conversation about rice growing, that it's cheaper and easier to sell rice to China than it is for Mozambique to sell rice into Southern Africa. And this, again, I was thinking about the uh, Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement and that maybe, I don't know if power is part of that as well, but it really highlights the work that's ahead for Africa to be able to make it easier to do things cross-border. Do you know if power is impacted by AFCTA? I don't know at all. It'll be very interesting to know. Yeah, it's something that would actually be very useful. I mean, you in South Africa, and he mentioned this about ESCOM has been supplying big chunks of Southern Africa with power. But again, the the power distribution issue is going to be something very interesting to look at. So uh, good for us to step back every once in a while and get an industry point of view from someone like Tapello. We're very glad that he was able to join us. Uh, Tapello is the kind of person who's also subscribing to our newsletter every day and reading the market intelligence that we're bringing uh, in in this daily digest that we do, where we summarize all the day's China-Africa news. We've got banks, diplomats, uh, agencies, uh, companies, all different players, lots of academics are following it every day. We would love for you to join Tapello and our reader community. Uh, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Uh, if you use the, po- the promo code podcast, there'll be a nice chunky discount that will throw in for you at the end. Uh, and part of it is when you subscribe, you can talk to Kobus and I a lot. Just send us an email. We give lots of uh, feedback and we engage with our readers almost every day. So we would love to hear from you. Uh, even if you're not a subscriber, but just a loyal listener, it's easy to find us. You can reach me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. Both of us are also on Twitter. We'll have all of that information from the kind lady at the end of the show. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.